morning's scriptures reading will be in the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. So if you'd like to be turning there, Proverbs 17, 24 through 28. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Also, to punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike princes for their uprightness. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. December the 31st of every year, it has become traditional at 11.59 p.m. of that night for people to tune in, and this year more than one billion people will tune in across the world and watch a ball drop in New York City from Times Square. Now, have you ever thought about the history of the New Year's Eve event at Times Square. I looked at that, and the inter- the history is very interesting. The first time uh, the time ball was installed, or the first time ball that was installed in the world, happened in England, and it was at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich in 1833. After the success of that event, about 150 other time balls were uh, made throughout the world at different locations. and uh, But very few of them still survive and work today. Of course, the time ball tradition continues today in places like the United States Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., where the time ball descends every single day at noon. And then, of course, once a year in Times Square where it marks the stroke of midnight each year beginning a new year. And New York City celebrated the new year as early as 1904. But they did not drop the ball until 1907. And that very first time ball was constructed out of iron and wood. It had 20, uh, or it had, uh, uh, 100 25-watt light bulbs, and it weighed about 700 pounds. Now, over the years, of course, it has changed form, and it has been redesigned four different times. Uh, Recently, the Millennial Ball for the year 2000 was redesigned, and uh, it was constructed out of of steel and other things, and it was uh, or is a geo desic sphere, it's six feet in diameter. It has 504 crystal triangles on it, and it weighs over a thousand pounds. And now each year, this ball has been dropped since 1907 at Times Square, except in the years 1942 and 1943 during the uh, city's World War II dim-outs. But even then, the people gathered together and observed a moment of silence and rang in the new year. Now, the name of this ball 
itself is called the Star of Hope. I've titled the sermon this morning, The Star of Hope. But why would it be named that? Why would they name this ball the Star of Hope? Well, because each year, that's what we ring in the new year with, isn't it? Hope. Hope's for different things, right? And each of these 504 crystal triangles represent a certain desire or hope. 504 of them. For instance, there is the hope for fellowship, the hope for peace, the hope for wisdom, the hope for unity, the hope for courage, the hope for healing. And I'm not going to name all 504, but the list goes on and on and on. And so, when I look at this idea of the the star of hope, I look at Proverbs 17. And I believe one of the lessons from Proverbs 17 is for the wise person to take possession of his or her future. Now, the hope of the future, however, relies for the most part, and largely on the individual, doesn't it? But the hope which rests in the heart of the Christian is very unlike the star of hope. The hope for fellowship and the hope for health and the hope for peace and wisdom and courage and all those other hopes are based on really a wish. A wish on a star, isn't it? We would hope that those things happen, but... Do we know for a fact that in the coming new year that the world will have great fellowship with each other? I think we know for the most part that that's not going to happen. Is the world going to have peace throughout every nation and land? I don't think that's going to happen because it hasn't happened up to this point. It doesn't appear that it's going to happen. I hope it does. We hope for that, don't we? We may ask or think about that. We may even pray for that. But those hopes are, are not based on promises. Those hopes are simply based on wishing on a star. Now Solomon, the wise man, had a, uh, a powerful future which waited on him as a young man because of his wisdom. And he asked for that wisdom, didn't he? He was given an opportunity to ask for something and in his writing, the Proverbs, that was why he had the ability to do that, God asked him what he wanted. He said he asked or asked for wisdom, and God said, well, since you didn't ask for health, you didn't ask for longevity, you didn't ask for uh, victories over your enemies, I'm going to give you wisdom and all those other things. And so there'll never be a king in your time as great as you are. He was the wealthiest king. He was the wisest king. But Solomon had his eye on the future. In the beginning, at least, didn't he? He had a hope for that. Now, what is the difference between the wise person who has his eye on the future and, and based in wisdom and the fool? Well, in our passage, the fool has his eyes on the ends of the earth. He's looking at everything. He's very distractible, isn't he? And we need to understand what the difference between those things are. We want God's wisdom. We want to focus on God's wisdom. We don't want to be easily distracted or swayed from one thing to the other thing. We want to receive what uh, the best of what God wants to give us, don't we? And that is based on promises that God has supplied to us. 
Now this morning, I want us to contrast the wise person and the fool so we can determine how to please God and ensure our futures. And I want us to first look at and understand a little something about the fool. Solomon said, the fool is always searching. His eyes are are on the ends of the world. Now that's an interesting verse because I believe that we can visualize that in things that we encounter throughout our lives. I can remember as a young boy growing up, 13 or 14 years old, and some of you may have done this very thing, I had an opportunity to go to the bean field to pick beans for money. And I believe at the time I was doing that, you could pick a bushel of of beans and and make $8. I don't know if they even still do that or not. They have machinery to do that, but we would go out. And I wasn't very successful in the bean field. I would start on my row, and I would see a good clump of beans, and I would pick those beans, and then I might look over next to me, and I would see a big clump of beans there, and so I would... I would reach over and get that clump of beans, and I might see something over there. And, and so by the time I had walked all over the place, and I filled up my bushel, I could have filled up ten bushels of, uh, of beans if I had simply focused on my row and stayed where I was at. And that is what the fool here is doing. And that's, that's what I think about when I, when I uh, read that. He looks all over the place. He walks everywhere. The, the, the fool is searching for better ways to be productive. He's looking for the brass ring. He's searching for the easy way out. He wants the easy answer. He doesn't want to endure. He's looking all over the place. Now Paul described that type of person for us, and he said he is easily distracted. Notice Ephesians 4 verse 14. He said the child of God learns better, meaning that he gains wisdom saying this, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Some people are uh, simply distracted in ways. They hear something new and they tend to be maybe a little gullible or naive and they are... uh, Tossed to and fro. The, when we read the Bible, and Jesus especially referred to his children as sheep often, didn't he? You know why? Because they're easily distracted. They may begin to eat a patch of grass here, then they move over and they move over and they move over, and eventually they'll fall right off the cliff. They pay no attention to what they're doing. They're easily distracted. And so the fool does not pay attention And he doesn't stay focused on what he needs to do. Now that man is the kind of guy who invests in the future by buying lottery tickets. He's the kind of person that can't stay married because there's never a a wife good enough that does what she's supposed to do. He can't keep a job because no job ever treats him fairly, right? He can't stay in one congregation of the Lord's people because there isn't one that does things the proper way or is faithful enough. I know a a family when I was in Memphis, they quit going to church anywhere and they just began to, to, to worship in their home, just them, because they were the only faithful ones in a city of about a million people. That ought to be a red flag, shouldn't it? 
That's not the case. Now, they think there's always a, a, a rainbow waiting over the next hill. They can't stay focused on what they're doing. And their eyes, and that's what Solomon talked about, wandering to the ends of the world, always looking for something better. And that person's always comparing himself, he's comparing his family, his job, and his potential with other things or people. Can't be happy, can't be satisfied. He's searching, but he can never be satisfied. That's what the fool does. He's like that person in the bean field. He's running all over the place to fill up that basket. And what he does end up doing is never being what he could be. Because he's not focused. He's not satisfied with anything. In the end, he's done less with his life than what he could have done. That's sad, isn't it? Paul reminded the Philippian brother of that very important lesson. And he learned that lesson, right? Paul had to learn some things. Philippians 4, beginning with verse 10, he said, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now, at the last, your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, or they were full of care for him. But you lacked opportunity. He said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I think the lesson here is, uh, you know, not to be satisfied with a circumstance that we can make better. Okay, I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about it's not wrong to improve a circumstance. It's not wrong if a circumstance is beyond improving to move yourself and place yourself in a better circumstance. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the individual who can never be satisfied, can never be content, no matter what state you're in. I think Paul is saying, no matter what the situation or the context, you can be, and he was, a faithful Christian. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Are there perfect jobs in the world? Probably not. Are there perfect families in the world? Are there perfect congregations of God's people? There aren't because they're full of people. But that doesn't mean there aren't good jobs, that our families aren't wonderful. That doesn't mean that there aren't congregations of faithful people in the world of which we can be a part. That doesn't mean we're we're perfect in every facet or aspect of life, but it simply means we are faithful and we're focused and we are devoted, right? If a person is moving from one thing to the other, he's not doing his best to make that situation better. I think that's what we ought to do when we consider things, right? We don't want to give up on our families because we struggle from time to time, do we? Every family struggles. We don't want to give up on our job simply because we don't make the most money in the world or it's a little bit difficult from time to time. We don't want to give up on our congregations of the Lord's people because they meet at 9.30 for Bible class instead of 9 o'clock, right? Because the carpet's blue instead of brown or whatever the case may be. There are no perfect people in the world, but there can be very faithful people in the world. The fool will never please God, but the wise person can please God. Now that doesn't mean, again, that that he or she is perfect, but they're doing all that they have within their ability to please God and to be faithful 
and to be focused. So we notice what the fool is. Now let's notice the wise person. The wise person is focused. That's our second point. He's focused. Why? Because he keeps his focus in view. What's his focus? Wisdom. Godly wisdom. That's what Solomon was talking about. We learn to be what we need to be because of godly wisdom, and we keep that focus in view. We're not going from one thing to the next trying to find the easy way out. That's not going to happen in this world, is it? Every situation isn't easy and comfortable. That doesn't mean some situations aren't easy and comfortable. And hallelujah when that comes along, right? We appreciate that. But what the wise person realizes is that lasting success in this life means sticking to the focus and keeping it in view. And that's what the the focused individual does. I don't know of any sports team or sports fan that, that doesn't realize a championship team isn't made overnight, it isn't made in one day, and it's not made in one season, right? I don't think a single sales meeting will transform a company from being uh, not profitable to being profitable, right? I don't believe a weekend marriage or parenting uh, get-together is going to completely uh, make the family the perfect family, right? It's not going to be like Leave it to Beaver. That's probably not going to happen. But that can help, can it? You need that one day or you need that season. You need that first sales meeting. You may need a little help in your marriage or your family or whatever the case may be, but you need that continued focus on what God has said. Now, we have a hope in this life, and coming into the new year, we hope for a lot of things, but we need to base our hopes on something that is credible, that is concrete, that we understand is true, right? Now, we can't make a successful life simply by looking for an easy fix. There aren't any easy fixes out there for the most part. We can't go from one congregation or one family or one job from one to the other to the other to the other because we do not help any of those become what they need to be. We're not there long enough, right? The person who has... One family and then goes on to another family. Isn't that sad? And I've read a lot about that. I've known people like that. Talk about their first family. Then they have a second family. You know. You read in the news about someone who has a wife on the East Coast and, and because he travels so much with his job, he has a family on the West Coast. And eventually, guess what? The East Coast and the West Coast find out about each other. Then he just simply moves on to another family. Right? That happens. That's real life. And it's not something that anyone should be proud of, and it's not something anyone should do. But what has happened there? You've destroyed one family, you destroyed another family, and you'll destroy the next one. And that's the same thing with the congregation, isn't it? You get upset because of something that doesn't make any difference one way or the other. It's not doctrinal in nature, and you just bounce around from one to the next. You leave one job, go to the next job. You have no history of work, and you can't be successful in those jobs because... No company wants to hire someone who's not going to help that company be the best it can be. Christians ought to look at it like that as well. The greatest achievements in life can only be accomplished with a constant focus. 
in keeping that in view. Jesus understood those truths, didn't he? What did he do prior to going into his ministry that lasted just about three and a half years? Well, he had 30 years of living to prepare him for that short-lived ministry. He didn't just, uh, at the age of majority, go out into the world and begin his ministry. He could have. He was was God in, in the form of mankind. But he needed to live as a person lives, and he did. He needed to learn the things that people experience and learn in this life, and it taught him some things from the aspect of experiencing it, right? Jesus prepared Luke 19, verse 10, to seek and to save the lost. And in that preparation, we read about him as a young boy at 12 years old, going to the temple, Uh, the family heads back home, and they get to looking around, and there's no Jesus anywhere. And I can't imagine a parent looking around, traveling away, and thinking, where's my child? That's happened to me, by the way. I've done that. And you get scared and you go back and you find that, that child, don't you? Well, that's what happened to them. They went, Luke 2, uh, chapter 2, they go back and they find him. He's in and he's talking with the doctors of the law and he's asking questions and he's in discussions, okay? Well, they gather him up and they, and they go back home and begin with verse 51 says, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto, unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus, here it is, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He was continually training himself to get ready for the greatest thing any person has ever done. The writer of Hebrews made a statement in Hebrews 5 verse 8 talking about his experiences in this life. He said, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That doesn't mean he didn't know things. He knew all things. But what that indicates to us is that he practiced obedience just as all people must practice obedience. And he understood and he learned through experience. He experienced the cost of being obedient, didn't he? We talked about it in class this morning. His prayer to God, remove this cup from me. He didn't want to go to the cross as a, as a person, he didn't look forward to that torture and that murder, but he did it. He focused. He worked through it. There wasn't an easy way out, was there? And he, through experience, understood what people understand, the cost of obedience. That means he can sympathize with us, right? He can understand. We can't say, but you don't understand what it's like. Oh, he understands. He understands everything. He understands what it's like in this life and what we endure. The wise person keeps his focus in view and he learns to become more and more like Jesus every day. And that means that that he learns or she learns not to vary in this life. That's difficult, isn't it? Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't vary. James talked about that, James 1 verse 17, in his description of the great things that God gives to us and and why He is the source of all great things. He said, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is God is God is God. He's the same God that spoke to Adam and Eve 
that speaks to us through the Bible today. The exact same God. God's wisdom and the wisdom of man, though, is, is very different, isn't it? We want to hope for things, but our hope is based in Scripture. It's based in God. We can prove God exists. We can look through the Bible and we see scientific truths that were not known to humanity prior to uh, them being written in the Bible. Solomon talked about the water cycle. Humanity wasn't aware of the water cycle. David talked about the streams of the oceans. That wasn't discovered till thousands and thousands of years later. Job and Isaiah understood that the earth was, a, was circular in shape. We didn't discover that until thousands and thousands of years later. And so we can prove the existence of God. We can prove the validity of the Bible. And so when we look at our hopes, we need to base it in the wisdom of God. We can't base it in the wisdom of humanity, can we? Have you ever noticed some of uh, the wise sayings of the world? For instance, look before you leap. Not that that's a bad uh, advice to give anyone, but at the same time, he who hesitates is lost. What about many hands make light work, but too many cooks spoil the broth? Clothes make the man, but we should never judge a book by its cover. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, but it's better to be safe than sorry. If at first you don't succeed, try and try again, but don't beat a dead horse. If you lie down with dogs, you'll get up with fleas, but if you can't beat them, join them, right? Now, not that some of those words aren't aren't wise to, to incorporate into our lives, but, but man's wisdom has weaknesses, doesn't it? God's wisdom has no weakness. God doesn't vary. You see the, the varying in man's wisdom? You know, never, if you can't beat him, join him. I don't know whenever that would be uh, a truth that we'd need to um, add to our lives. And when we look at Solomon, when he relied on his own wisdom, earthly wisdom, what happened? He nearly lost his soul. But then when he came back to God and he relied on God's wisdom, he gained eternity. I believe too many people in the world rely on their own wisdom, don't they? I think that's a problem. They believe if, if they only had power and wealth and influence, then everything would be fine and okay, and they would be the happiest people in the world. But what if you had power and you didn't use it properly? What if you had wealth and, and you didn't spend it properly? What if you had influence and you influenced people for the wrong? What good is that? That's not good at all. See, we want our hopes to be based on God's wisdom. We have a star of hope but it has to be based on God's wisdom, not a wish on a star. And so people struggle to gain those things. But they don't have the discernment to recognize what's right before them, right? They don't have the discernment to keep godly wisdom in their view and not to vary from it. There's a difference between the fool. There's a difference between the wise person who focuses and there's also a different difference between the wise person who searches out and wants to find God's wisdom. That's our third point. The wise person searches out 
wisdom, but he goes to the right authority. Not himself. That's not what the wise person does. How many people that we would consider wise goes to build a house who has no expertise or no uh, uh, experience at all in building who doesn't get some advice from someone who does? Well, we're not going to have very good building on our hands, are we? You can't build from the top down. You have to build from the bottom up. And any good builder knows that. And James encouraged us, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Not only do you need to ask Him for it, expect to receive it, right? If any of you lack wisdom, James 1 verse 5, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's not a question of if God will give us wisdom. It's a question of will we take the wisdom and will we search it out to find the wisdom. He's provided it for us, but it's our responsibility to go to the right authority to find that wisdom. That doesn't mean that there aren't wise people in the world, but if you'll notice, the wise people in the world give you advice and it sounds awfully familiar to the wisdom of God. Peter said that God has provided to us, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue. Here's the problem with humanity's wisdom. Our wisdom is based on our experiences. Our wisdom is based on our sight. And our wisdom will always be limited. Our wisdom is always limited. God's wisdom is never limited. If we could climb the highest mountain and look out over our sight would still be limited wouldn't it it would be limited by our own eyesight and by the horizon we can just see so much but God can see all things his wisdom is from so high that he can see all things there's no limits there's no boundaries he knows the end from the beginning doesn't he he already knows because he's God Isaiah said God declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46, 10. When we look to God for wisdom in our lives, we're better than the fool. Because we have the advantage of God's wisdom. God's not going to tell us something that is foolish. Now the world calls, Paul said, the wisdom of God foolish. But God, but he said God's going to save us by his foolishness, not the world's wisdom. We're able to find wisdom if we seek it from the right authority. But how do we know that we've done that? How can we demonstrate that we have wisdom? We do that when we accomplish what God's asked us to do. Jesus spoke a parable about two men building homes, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. One built a house on the rock, one built a house on the sand. And God or Jesus described that individual who heard and did not obey as foolish. You heard what I said, you know I said it, but you chose not to do it. And he said, that's the man that builds his house on the sand. Now at the same time, the person who hears what I say and does what I say, he built his house on the rock. 
Now, the whole idea of this parable is in the Middle East, they have what they call wadis. A wadi is like a dry creek bed. It, it, it runs with water when it's the rainy season. And so what happens throughout the year, there's no water. So someone might go over and it's a sandy bottom, and they might want to build a house because it's level, right? It's easy. That's the easy way out. And so they'll build up this, this house on this sand. Now the wise person will go outside the wadi, will dig down to that rock, that base rock, and he'll build a house on that. So when it comes a rain, doesn't matter. That house is going to stand because it has a strong foundation. But what happens when the water begins to come down through the wadi? Well, look out. The house is just going to go with it. We've seen that in, in our own country, haven't we, during floods? We've seen it right here. Clay's told me before he's seen railroad ties float right down the water, right down the road because of a flood. We need to be the wise person person who hears and obeys. That's why we have to, to open ourselves up to God's wisdom. How do we do that? Bible classes, worship services, midweek services, and most importantly, when it comes to Bible study, personal Bible study. We're not going to learn what we need to know with a Sunday morning Bible class and a Wednesday night Bible class. We're not going to learn all we need to know. Now, that will help what we're doing, right? But the more godly wisdom we attain, the greater our advantage in receiving the things that God wants us to have. On January the 1st, the ball that drops at Times Square is called the Star of Hope. And on its face are the wishes of our nation, courage, peace, fellowship, many others. But if we listen to the Scripture, we have a hope that's not based on a wish on a star it's based in something that is real if we search out God's wisdom and we do God's wisdom we'll have success we're going to have success not only in this coming year but we'll have success every single day isn't that one of the issues with New Year's Eve, New Year's resolutions you know we we think well next year I'll start my diet or next year I'll start exercising. Or next year I'm going to do this. Or next, You know, what about let's do it today. Let's be successful today. Let's not wait for the star of hope as it drops down on Times Square and now all of a sudden as if it were magic, everything's going to be better. Well, no, everything's going to be better when we make things better, right? When we become faithful. We can do it today. We can do it any day in which we're alive in this world. And we understand how to do that. How do I have hope? For the future. Obey the gospel plan of salvation. Number one, that's what I have to do, right? When those on Pentecost heard the sermon Peter and the other apostles preached, they asked a question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 37 of Acts 2. They wanted to know how they could have those sins from this life removed. Peter said, repent, stop doing what you're doing, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's what he told them. He went on to say a couple of verses later, or Luke recorded with, recorded for us with many other words, did he testify unto them saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. What were those other words? Well, I have an idea that he talked about believing in Jesus. 
John 8, 24. Jesus taught it, Peter would have taught it. Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, confessing it before men. Jesus taught that, Peter would have taught it. Paul taught it, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Being immersed in water, of course, he made that statement. We see uh, Stephen or Philip teaching the Ethiopian eunuch that in Acts chapter 8, but before he baptized him, the eunuch made the great confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Faithful living, I guarantee you, that Peter didn't let him out of there without saying you have to remain faithful. That was some of those had to have been. Those other words that he exhorted them. Now what happens when we do that and we become unfaithful? Well, we have to come back to God. Time plus sin doesn't mean forgiveness, does it? We have to repent. We don't have to be baptized again, but we have to repent. We have to confess, whether publicly or privately. I've sinned. God, I'm sorry for that. Will you please forgive me? Sometimes we have to uh, make that statement publicly because I've sinned in a public way, maybe. And so the church will pray with you and for you. You remember the 1959 classic movie, Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston? One of the most famous scenes of that movie was that climactic chariot race. And that chariot race required five weeks of filming, 15,000 extras, and 18 chariots, nine of which were used by the stunt crew during practice. Now, in the spirit of authenticity, Charlton Heston learned how to drive that four-horse chariot. And so he practiced that, and he practiced that, but it came time to, to, to film the scene, and he went to the stunt coordinator, and he said, I have a worry. He said, I know how to drive the chariot, but I don't know if I can win. The stunt coordinator looked at him and said, Chuck, you stay in the chariot. I'll make sure you win. But isn't that what God's told us? Jesus made a statement. He said, My Father which gave them me, John ten twenty nine, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. All we have to do is make sure we stay in the hand. God will make sure we win. Because no one can make us leave the hand. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation this day, whether through initial obedience or whether a repentance of sin in your life to be restored, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.